Okay, guys, we are in Acts chapter 8. If you'll turn there, we have uh, had some amazing things happen already in the first seven chapters of Acts. Certainly, these disciples had heard Jesus give the Great Commission, uh, the fam- most famous one, of course, in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. But he, in all the Gospels, Jesus had said, this Gospel is to go to all the world. He had told them to go into Jerusalem and wait for the special gift, which was the gift of His Spirit. And when the Spirit came upon them, they will receive power, and they were going to be His witnesses everywhere. First of all, in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. So they they had a great commission. They knew what they were supposed to do. So far, they've been in Jerusalem, and they've been highly effective. But other than the day of Pentecost, when you had representatives from around the world there, and the apostles were speaking in other tongues to address them with the gospel, you really don't have much of a hint of anything on the minds of the apostles or the other disciples of going internationally with this message. They had enough problems where they were. They had enough opposition where they were. They were just trying to survive, even as they were growing by the hundreds and thousands. They were trying to take care of the people that were coming in, teaching them the gospel, getting them engrafted into the family of God. They had plenty of problems. And you don't see really anything crossing their mind about going outside of their own city. Because after all, everybody knows Jerusalem is the most important city in the world. And there they are in the religious capital of the world, and good things are happening, and really... They're not too concerned, it seems, about these words they faintly remember that Jesus said about international mission. And it's kind of the way the church today does. We've got all kinds of problems. I mean, if you're in church leadership, you just got problems, problems, problems. Every day, every week, people have all kinds of problems, personal problems, relationship problems. There are church organizational problems. There are conflicts in the church. You just kind of, when you get into church leadership, sometimes you can just get swamped with it. And sometimes the concerns in Algeria never cross your mind. You just never think about it. Now at the same time we've noticed in these first seven chapters that the church is always facing opposition. Always. And uh, it began with the Sanhedrin, the religious opposition, the traditional defenders of the faith (laughs) were the first ones to attack the faith of the Messiah. And we've seen that as a result of enduring these persecutions by the combination of Congress, the Supreme Court, and the police headquarters, all in one body, the Sanhedrin, that the disciples were gaining confidence and strength. And ultimately, they rejoice in the Lord that they're considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. The church is being strengthened through its persecutions. And then we notice there was internal difficulty. In other words, when Satan can't attack us on the outside, he attacks us on the inside. First of all, with the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. Once again, we saw that the judgment of God fell upon not just that situation, but those individual hypocritical people, lying people. Fear fell upon them all so that there was a nice little filter for the church. Only serious-minded people were going to come into the church. Nobody was going to do this on the backstroke. Might get themselves killed 
So fear fell upon them all, and it not only grew the church, but it purified the church. And then we saw Satan had another strategy, and that was to create strife within the church between the Hebraic-speaking women, widows and the Greek-speaking widows. Not just their language, but their culture was different. And we saw how the church faced that with a beautiful multicultural strategy of electing deacons from the minority ethnic position. And they provided leadership for the distribution of the goods among the Hebrew and Greek-speaking widows. And then we saw it got really serious last time that this opposition can sometimes get so fierce that folks will actually begin killing people because they're faithful Christians. And we saw last time our first martyr, Stephen. If you go into our, our sanctuary and you look at the shields of the apostles up at the top, the first one, I believe it's on the uh, west, the southwest side is a palm tree, and that's the, the sign for Stephen uh, representing peace. You know, that he's the one who received the crown of righteousness and peace from God. Uh, so he's, he's numbered among the apostles, as it were, uh, as our first martyr. And now, <clears throat> if <clears throat> the pattern holds true, that when persecution strikes, the church is strengthened and the gospel is advanced, we should kind of expect something like that coming after Stephen's death. We kind of are saying, okay, so how, how God, are you going to redeem even our getting killed? I mean, it seems like it's all over when we get killed. But when we turn to Acts chapter 8, we're going to see in these first 25 verses, indeed, God takes the blood that you offer, your own blood, your own life, given up for the gospel, and He uses it powerfully uh, to bless many other people. Let's look at this. Verse 1, we'll pick up where we were last time. And Saul approved of his execution. That would be Stephen's execution. There you have Saul, once again mentioned, before his conversion. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So you see, initially, it looks like this thing's not getting better. I don't see any redemptive effect of this. It's just getting worse. Stephen gets martyred. Now the whole church is being persecuted. We had one public martyr. Now we're going to have the whole church martyred. Disaster. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Stop there. Okay, so much for the church. We had these thousands of people who came in. We had a nice mega church. I mean a mega church in the religious capital of the world. And they were doing fine. They were facing all their problems. Then look what God allowed to happen. One of us gets killed for the gospel. And now the whole church is decimated. It's just destroyed. People just scatter everywhere. It's a disaster. Keep reading. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. You can see the church is not happy. The church is not excited about mission. The church is not saying, thank you, God, we've learned so much through his death. No, they're just lamenting. And Saul, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Oh boy, this is getting fun. Now all of our relatives are telling you, I told you there was a bunch of crazies and you're just going to get yourself in trouble, ruin our family reputation, and lose your job, and it's going to be a disaster for the succeeding generations. That's the way things are looking. It's just going from bad to worse. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Okay, the first thing we want to look at, Roman number one, our persecution often leads to gospel mission. Our persecution often leads to gospel mission. Surprise, surprise, surprise. God takes that which is evil and turns it into good. And all I can do is I can just tell you my own experience. I mean, this, these verses we read just kind of chart my personal emotions when things are going badly when somebody's getting persecuted or when there's hostility or un- injustice or other, some other thing against the church or against some of you. It just is distressing and it's depressing. You think, what is going on here? Why is God allowing this? He's, he's just judging us. What did we do wrong? We have no earthly idea of the big picture, especially if your church is declining in membership and people are moving to other places because of the economy. And we're saying, this is ruining the church. (laughs) Well, that's often our first reaction. We look at our lives. Bad things are happening. This is destroying my life. I lost a loved one. I lost a business. Reputation is ruined. My life is ruined. And that's always our first reaction. But notice how this happens in the text. A, when persecuted, we scatter. The word scattered is the verbal form of the noun diaspora. You've heard of that. The diaspora just means the dispersion. And we normally think of the diaspora as the Jewish diaspora away from Jerusalem. And so, uh, you know, before 1948, you had Jews spread all over Europe and Asia. And when Israel began to be a nation, declared, declared a nation in 1948 the diaspora began to return to Jerusalem. Well, the New Testament says that the real spiritual diaspora is actually ourselves. That we're the ones who are dispersed from Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, our home. We're in dispersion. We're the diaspora. But here you can see the church goes into physical diaspora out of Jerusalem. That's God's intent. When we're persecuted, we scatter. You remember the situation in China back in the Revolution. In the middle part of the last century, 637, uh, uh, Stott reports this in his commentary, 637 um, uh, missionaries from one agency were expelled out of China. Where'd they go? Other places in Asia to minister. What happened to China? A hundred million believers right now without the Western missionaries. Imagine, God is willing to do something without Western missionaries. And, but he did it. And when we, per- when we get persecuted, we scatter And the word goes out. Now notice B, when scattered, we preach. He says, this is probably the key verse to the whole chapter. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That word preaching is actually the word evangelizing. They went evangelizing the word. They went announcing good news 
in the Word. And you'll find that word evangelized five times in this chapter. Luke is making a point. The church of Jesus Christ is an evangelistic church. And you notice here, wherever they went, they were preaching. So it wasn't that they weren't preaching. The problem was they weren't going. Now, once God moved them to go, they kept preaching. They didn't stop preaching. Their venue was changed. And God is simply saying to the church, "Uh, excuse me, boys, I think you forgot something. I said, no, I said, first in Jerusalem. I didn't say only in Jerusalem. You must have forgotten what I said a few months ago. I said, first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria. And then after that, boys, we'll talk about the rest of the world. Don't forget, if you forget, I have other methods of moving you around. (laughs) That's exactly what he's doing to his church. He means business with the Great Commission. And he will do things in our lives. If we're following him, if we're faithful to him, he will do things in our personal lives, our family lives, our church lives, even our national life to get people out to tell other people about the gospel. The situation in the world is this. We have now 7 billion people. I understand we just turned that mark last week or so. A third of those people, I guess that would be about 2.33 billion people, claim to be Christians. Uh, I think we'd probably be happy if a third of them were genuinely converted, but a third of them claim to be Christians. A third of that 7 billion, that would be 2.33 billion people, are not Christians but live in an area where there is some Christian witness in their country or their region. A third of those people, 2.33 billion people, have no Christian witness anywhere in their community or region. That's the condition in the world. And what we're told by demographers is that if you take that 4.66 billion people that are lost, only 8 Percent, they would be zero eight. Eight percent know a Christian of any stripe, sort, or kind. Only eight percent of the lost world have any acquaintance or any knowledge of a believer in Jesus Christ. I think when you look at world history and some of the disasters that are happening, especially when they happen to the church, and you see the church getting scattered around, you can always think for just a moment about what God might be up to around the world. That percentage probably suggests there's going to be much more disruption in our lives to get us to move around to where we need to be because our persecution often leads to gospel mission. Well, you might ask, well, did they have any success? I'm really glad you asked. Look at verses 5 through 8. And here we learn that the gospel mission often leads to amazing gospel outcomes. God doesn't just send us to these places and then abandon us. He doesn't just send us there to set a good example. He doesn't send us there just to be martyrs. He sends us there to gather His people in, to do amazing things. And we struggle and strive. And sometimes, like William Carey, we can go for years and years and just see a handful After a lifetime, just a handful of converts. And then it's 200 years later when people now are going to North Africa, uh, I'm sorry, Northern India, over and over again. And now we're seeing 
hundreds of thousands of untouchables coming to faith in Jesus Christ in northern Africa, which was the graveyard of missionaries for two centuries after William Carey. So sometimes, yes, in your personal lifetime, it looks as though things aren't moving very well. But when you look at the whole scope of things, you'll find that God takes that faithful work of William Carey. And through the years, he continues to do amazing things. That's exactly what he did, of course, much more rapidly here in Samaria. First of all, in uh, verse 5a, you see that this, uh, of these amazing gospel outcomes, we first of all had an amazing minister. Now, he was amazing not because he was highly educated, not because he was brilliant. He's amazing because really he was just a simple man. He was a deacon along with Stephen, Philip. This is not Philip the apostle. It's a different Philip. This is Philip the deacon. He was just ordained. He just saw his fellow deacon get slaughtered for preaching the gospel. And amazingly now, Philip himself is willing to go down the line and be the next major preacher out of that that crew of deacons. And Philip faithfully goes down, we are told, uh, and we see that he goes down B to an amazing milieu to the very city of Samaria. Now, folks, this, uh, to us, we've heard the word Samaria so many times that we've grown used to it, but this is absolutely shocking that uh, even a Greek-speaking Jewish man like Philip, Philip, of course, knew his Hebrew and his Aramaic, but he, he, he knew the Greek trade language, and he had a Greek background. You can tell from his name. Even for him, this was wild to go to Samaria. Why? Because the Samaritans, you remember, they began to be divided from the southern kingdom. Israel had 12 tribes. You can look probably, well, in the back of your, your Bible, and you'll see a map how the 12 tribes were distributed. After Solomon, remember there was a division in the kingdom. So the 10 northern tribes came under one king, and the two southern tribes came under another king. The southern tribes uh, being Judah and Benjamin. And that becomes Judea. The northern tribes ultimately became Samaria. And the capital was uh, the city of Samaria itself. Now, later on, through, the, through about three centuries, uh, or I'm going to make it two centuries, uh, they began to drift further apart. There was rivalry. Eventually, you know, the Assyrians came in 722 B.C. and took off into exile the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom went into exile into Babylon in 586 B.C., but 722, the Assyrians took off the northern kingdom. Now, when they did that, they took all the leaders off. They left some of the peasants, and then they interbred with them through the centuries. So the Samaritans were interbred with the Assyrians. And of course, that was completely gross and taboo to the ones who considered themselves the true Jews in the southern kingdom. They kept their lineage pure. And if you look at Nehemiah, when the Jews are returning from Babylon, one of the first things they do is check everybody's genealogy to be sure that there was no intermarriage that they kept true. They married within the faith, so to speak. So the the northern kingdom folks were mixed breed and they were mixed religion. This got further complicated uh, when the exiles from Babylon, this would be the southern kingdom exiles, come back under Nehemiah. They're rebuilding the wall. You remember the Samaritans wanted to help. 
Nehemiah said, no way, Jose. This is for God's people to do. And they built the wall. And because of that, it increased the division between the two. And then if you know your history, you know also that the Samaritans, within the 4th century B.C., they decided to build their own temple, which they did on Mount Gerizim, which has special significance for the people of God. Because you remember after they crossed the Jordan coming from Egypt, they, they went to Mount Gerizim to hear the word of God. And we studied that in Deuteronomy. The Samaritans then had their temple on Mount Gerizim. Furthermore, the Samaritans, like the Sadducees actually, only received the Pentateuch. They didn't believe the prophets. Because the prophets uh, in your Old Testament refer over and over again to Jerusalem and restoring Jerusalem in God's big vision. They wouldn't have anything to do with that. So they adopted only the Pentateuch as the Bible. They rejected the prophets. Furthermore, they had their own idea of Messiah. They believed there would be a Messiah coming, but it wasn't the same Messiah that the Jews in the southern kingdom were looking for. It was so bad that any self-respecting Jew, when traveling from Galilee, if they lived in the north, to Jerusalem for the festivals, would not even walk through Samaria. They would walk around it. It was known as an evil land, a wicked land, a land of heresy, right and left, an ungodly place. You don't want your children going there. So the children were not allowed to. They always had to go around, around, you know, they would usually go right along the River Jordan and go south and then come into Jerusalem from Jericho. That was the path because they didn't want to touch Samaria. Philip goes to Samaria. And gentlemen, there are places that you and I think of in similar ways. Maybe we don't think they're as evil as a Jew thought Samaria was, but they're just clearly as marked off. There are probably some here who wouldn't even know the major streets in Raleigh or Fraser, or wouldn't know what's happening in South Memphis. Those neighborhoods are just so far removed from us. They have nothing to do with us. And they're dangerous. And they're, if you have white skin, those neighborhoods have largely dark skin, and you don't feel comfortable there. And you rarely think about it. And there's no Unfortunately, with the church, there's very little sense of the Christian mission going there. We've got enough problems right here in East Memphis. That would be a very similar situation to what they were facing. And God moved them out by force. He got some of them killed to get them into these neighborhoods. That's how strongly he feels about it. So God will get us to Samaria. He said that... The gospel message was to go first to Jerusalem, wherever your family is, wherever your neighborhood is, wherever your church is. Your church needs revitalization and renewal, and you owe it the gospel to them. You must minister to people in your church, in your neighborhood. First there. But gentlemen, don't forget, I said pretty quickly, the next move is this way. We're going to Judea and Samaria. We're going to the broader area, and we're going to take responsibility for those areas in the gospel ministry. Philip got it. And wherever God sent him, even though it was perforce, wherever God sent him, Philip kept preaching. So it was an amazing person going to an amazing area because it was not his familiar turf. It was all of his life he thought it was beneath him. And that's where God sent him. And that's exactly where the church needs to go today. We need to be thinking more and more about whether the gospel ministry in this city is equally represented 
in every neighborhood of the city. Uh, Cabana, the uh, community building and neighborhood development uh, a group at uh, University of Memphis has studied our neighborhoods. And basically they've identified 127 neighborhoods in Memphis. Now, I, I, you know, you could argue with them about the division of those neighborhoods, but if you get to know neighborhoods, you, you kind of know there, there is a, there are these little fiefdoms, you know, and they, and they all kind of have their unofficial mayors too, if you get to know the neighborhoods. So there are 127 of them. And Cabana has divided these neighborhoods into those that are neighborhoods of choice, those that are vulnerable, and those that are distressed. A distressed neighborhood is a neighborhood that is in arrears in every way that you might measure neighborhood health. So let's start with the distressed neighborhoods. You've got 127 neighborhoods. 56 of them are distressed. They're in distress. That is, in every metric that you would use to measure the health of a neighborhood, they're in arrears, 56 of them. You have 37 of them who are vulnerable. Let's see, that would be 93 out of 127. Do you realize that 84% of our population lives in those neighborhoods? That's Memphis. The gospel's been here for 200 years. We need to be moving on. We need to be spreading out. And sometimes the Lord has to move us physically when we don't move spiritually. So those of us who are in communities, church communities, that we would consider vibrant, healthy churches. Now, with all of our problems, Second Presbyterian, uh, you'd have to say, okay, you're one of them. And the rest of you, some of you are looking at churches, go, oh, man, we got all kinds of problems. Well, look, generally, the gospel is being preached and taught there, and generally, it's being governed by, by uh, your governing body in a way that's healthy, Generally, you're paying your bills on time. Okay, you're a vibrant, healthy church. Now let's get this thing spread out. And it seems to me that in our mission as a church, if you're in one of the neighborhoods of choice, then a neighborhood of choice would be about where 10% of our population lives. So if you live in a neighborhood of choice, you're in this little thin slice of pie. And you've got to realize that what Jesus said he actually meant I want you to wait to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses in other places. Now, you may say, I'm too old for this. I don't know how to adapt to another neighborhood. I don't, I'm not very good cross-culturally. Okay, do you have children? Do you have grandchildren? Do you have nephews? Do you have cousins? Do you have somebody you're mentoring? Is there something happening in the succeeding generation? Are they beginning to hear your rhetoric? You know what happens? Here's what I've noticed in my 30 years of ministry. When people get on fire for Jesus Christ, their rhetoric begins to change. That is, okay, I know I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. And they begin to talk a little bit different game. And then you know what I've noticed? The next generation actually puts their rhetoric into practice. And you know what else I notice? Their rhetoric changes. And their rhetoric actually goes beyond what they're actually doing. And then you know what I've, I've, I've lived long enough now to see? Their grandchildren pick up their rhetoric and put it into practice. But it begins with repentance, with acknowledging that we need to be something different than we've been. We need to go places we haven't gone. And we need to begin, if you're an old guy and you don't feel like you've got the skills to do it yourself, you, begin, you need to begin to save up your money, save up your time to get in some groups to talk about this, talk with some experts, and there's some in this very room who know how to do something significant in the city, and begin to mobilize your time, your money, your resources, and your influence on your family, and let's get the move on and get the caravan going. 
before somebody gets shot and we all leave these places in the last place anyway. That's kind of how what happened in Jerusalem. They weren't strategizing. They weren't spending their time talking about Samaria and God took care of it. I suggest we get ahead of that strategy, the persecution strategy. Let's not use that one if you don't mind. There's too much blood, guts, and disappointment with it. Why don't we just get moving and do what God told us to do? You'll be my witnesses in East Memphis and Cordova and Germantown, and then you'll be my witnesses in all of Memphis and then all of your nation and then all of the world. And there's got to be a strategy among us. And there's got to be a mobilization of our resources and beginning with our hearts. And that's what you see happening here. There's an amazing milieu and God was sending them out. Now, notice thirdly, in, still, we haven't gotten out of verse 5 yet, that there was an amazing message. They proclaimed, and this word proclaimed in 5c is the word for preach. And I believe it's the first instance of it here in, in Acts. Kerux. And proclaim to them, preach to them Christ. Now, when we think of the word preach or proclamation, same word here. Normally what we think of is what guys like me do on a Sunday morning in a pulpit. Well, it's true that that is preaching. Well, at least some people preach because to preach is to proclaim the kingdom and to proclaim the kingdom is to proclaim Christ and to proclaim Christ is to proclaim that he's made a way for you to be reconciled to him through his blood on the cross now there's the gospel and there are some pulpits in the city that actually preach the gospel so it's true that professionals like myself who get paid to do it do preach from pulpits but that's not the primary meaning of the word preach the word preach in the new testament is used scores of times with, except for one instance that I can think of in 2 Timothy, where Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, and it seems that he's talking about his life in the church. But every other instance of Kerux is proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers. It's not what the professional does, paid by the believers to teach the believers within the church. That's not the primary uh, usage of the word preach is the word for people like Philip, people like you who go out into the community and tell people about the kingdom of God and about Jesus Christ, trying to have the influence upon them. That's what Philip was doing. He was, he was not a professional. He was a layperson who got made into a deacon and now he's a preacher talking about Jesus. That's how it works and that's how it works when God is really blessing his church. Now, I want you to move into verses 6 and 7, D, and you'll see that there's an amazing ministry. And these people were paying attention to them. And, when, and we told her that they paid attention to him when they heard him and when they saw what he did. Now, this is vital. It's vital for our ministry in the city, especially in these distressed and vulnerable neighborhoods. They must hear and see. If you want them to have the attention, they must hear the message of the kingdom and they must see the works that are done. Now, both Philip and Stephen, these two deacons, are two uh, rare instances of non-apostles working signs and wonders. So we, knew that, we know now that signs and wonders were worked by non-apostles. Now, they were always worked with apostles. That was one of the signs of the apostles. 
But here you have two special preachers who are working miraculous signs, casting out demons and healing people. The point for us would be, you know, if you're a charismatic, fine, there you go. If you're a Presbyterian, I mean, charismatics, they exercise demons. Presbyterians build hospitals, okay? I mean, that's, that's just, you know. And we, doing it all together will get it done. But however you do it, whether you build a hospital or you provide a jobs program or you help people build homes or you go into a neighborhood to help them clean up their neighborhood, whatever it is, you're helping the physical, temporal circumstances of people. And you'll notice that Philip did that immediately. He didn't wait till four weeks later when he had a community development corporation established. In his personal life, he began to help people from the moment he set foot on the turf. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. If you'll check out the definition of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, if you look at Matthew chapter 4 and then once again in chapter 9, like bookends, what Matthew says is that Jesus went about preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons. That was His ministry. It was a proclamation ministry and a demonstration ministry. It was a spiritual ministry and a physical ministry. And woe be to the person who separates them. If you divide these off, you split asunder what God has joined together. If you divide them off, it's a denial of the gospel because the gospel is an announcement, but it's an announcement of a kingdom. And people, when they hear that a kingdom is coming, will begin to see the evidences that the kingdom is on its way. And if there are no evidences, well, the kingdom must not be on its way. I don't see any change around here. But when they see that somebody loves them, when they see that somebody cares that they get a decent education for their children, and somebody cares that there are businesses being started so that they can actually get a job. And who knows, hallelujah, one day they may even own a percentage of that business. When they see that happening in the neighborhood, you know what they're likely to say? Hey, something's going on here. There's another rule or another reign taking place here. That's what happens. That's the reason that Philip had their attention. Something's going on here. Now, in their case, it was very dramatic and miraculous. In our case, in a, in a what we'd call an established Christian gospel nation where the gospel's been proclaimed for centuries and where works have been going on and some of the demons, frankly, have been scattered because of what our fathers and mothers did before us. And they're put at bay in some ways. How now are going to people, people going to see the kingdom? Maybe it's not regularly through exorcisms. It's through a change in their lives and lifestyles as a result of people who have power who are now using their power to bless them. That's how they see the kingdom at work. That's what they saw in Philip. That's the reason he had their attention. Now, what happens to rich people like us is that you come out to a neighborhood of choice where the physical needs that you have are um, outsourced to various entities who take care of you. You have the government who picks up your trash. You have a physician or a whole network of physicians that your insurance company provides, and you can go get health care with your physician. And no matter what happens to the health care crisis in our country, rich people will always have a way to get their health needs met. And you have a system for that. And what's very inconvenient is when they change the rules and we have to figure out new forms to fill out, new people to talk to, new strategies we have to use to get around the loopholes and all this kind of thing. But we'll figure it out. And we eventually, we have our system of health care Rich people do. And then we have our schools. And if the government will do it for us, fine. If the government won't do it, then we'll figure out some other way. Our, our churches, our wealthy churches will do it, or our uh, 
people will get together in a collaborative and they'll create a school and do it so our children are going to be provided for. We outsource that to some social entity over here to handle it. You see how Christians in rich communities do it. And I'm, listen, I'm not criticizing. I think this is fabulous. We've got all these entities that help us meet all the needs of our lives. And then we go to church. And when we go to church, we want to hear something. We want to be stimulated intellectually. We want to be kind of redirected, if you will, but not too much so that we get angry. Just redirect us a little bit, maybe three or four degrees. Don't give me this 90-degree stuff or we'll fire the preacher. But just three or four, three or four degrees, give me, a little, give me a little life adjustment, and then I need a little encouragement. I need, I need to be told in the gospel, you know, things are all right. It's going to work out, and not just in heaven, but even now for you. It'll work out. You just keep plugging away. Do good. Don't give up, and everything will work out. I need that on Sunday need a little recreation. And, but when I go to church, I want to make friends. I want to feel comfortable. And I want to have friends who will be good business partners and golf buddies after all. And I want to connect and maybe a Bible study during the week. And boy, if I get that at my church, my church is serving my needs. And the church is one more institutional entity that ties it all together for us. Now, here's what happens to rich people. We have taken the ministry of Jesus Christ and we've outsourced it in many different places. It's not just the church. The church does certain things for us, but it doesn't do all this stuff for us. We, we don't go to the church and say to the preacher, I've got this knot on my elbow. Could you look at that for me? <laughs> you know, a, a preacher in a church like ours would go, what do you think I am, a Pentecostal? I mean, I'm a Presbyterian. I don't deal with that. I mean, we'd say, yo, Dr. Hickson, would you come up here and look at this man's elbow? I mean, I don't know. And then Doug would say, well, you need to come in my office tomorrow. Now, if you're in a poor church, like some of the ones I've been talking about, you, you don't outsource this stuff. You don't have the resources to outsource it. You come to the believers and you say, I've got this thing on my elbow. And the pastor says, let me take a look at that. And he says, guys, let's gather around and pray for this man. Does anybody here know a doctor? And we, we go with him to the doctor's house and we get him some care. And someone says, you know, my little girl didn't know how to read. Say, well, how, let's get her together and figure out how we're going to help this little girl read. You see how if you want to understand the gospel, you really need to go into under-resourced parts of the world or under-resourced communities to get your gospel integrated again so that you understand what it is. Rich people have bifurcated it, and we don't understand it anymore. So we need our brothers and sisters who are living in areas that are kind of like Samaria who will show us the power of God in the gospel of Christ. And so that we begin to take responsibility again for serving each other in our churches and serving the world, especially the poor, with every aspect of the gospel. So reintegrate your gospel. And when you do, then when there is physical suffering, especially the repetitive, chronic type of suffering, man, that's the, that's the first place we want to go. Because the gospel has something to say about that. The gospel has something to do about that. That's my business. Those are my neighborhoods. That's the way the Christian who reads Acts chapter 8 begins to think. That's our business. So this is exactly what was happening with Philip. It was an amazing ministry. But I do want to back up to 5C and notice where he begins. And this is so important. Gentlemen, what I've been emphasizing in the past 10 minutes is that you, you can't separate proclamation from the actual demonstration of the gospel. You can't do that. Otherwise, you're denying this gospel. It has no power. 
At the same time, by backing up to 5C, I want you to notice you cannot do the works of the gospel and f- leave off the message. Let me tell you why. If you go in and help people and build homes for them and provide food for them, get them a job, clean up the neighborhood, and you don't say anything about Christ or the kingdom, and you don't lead them to faith in Him, here's the conclusion of what you did every time. He's a nice guy. He's also a wealthy guy. He's got power. He can help me. There's the conclusion. That's the natural interpretation of what you've done. If you don't proclaim the kingdom, you haven't interpreted what just happened to these people. The proclamation of the kingdom is an interpretation. It is to say, the reason you see these things happening is because there is a king upon the throne. It is God's one and only Son. 2,000 years ago, He came to this earth to serve you and to love you and to provide for you an atonement that will forgive your sins and give you a status of righteousness before Him that will never pass away. And you become His child. And that's the reason that He has moved upon the hearts of His people to be here because He's the King and we're seeking to obey Him. Would you like to know the King? You see, there's an interpretation of the historical event. That's what happened at Pentecost. The fire came down upon their heads. Peter gave the interpretation. Let me tell you why this is. Joel said this was going to happen. And Jesus Christ has been enthroned to the right hand of the Father. And He and the Father have poured out what you now see. Peter gave interpretation. Otherwise, people would say, man, those those folks are quite, they're unbelievable magicians. It's unbelievable what they could do. You know, I went to church today. You know what happened? It looked like people had fire on their heads. Amazing thing. I don't know how they do that. That would have been the interpretation. There's a magician here. Philip makes sure the main thing people know is the eternally saving message. Because, as John Piper said at the Lausanne Congress, when we were debating this issue about the relationship between word and deed, John put it this way. He said, We Christians care about all of the sufferings of all the people in the world, especially their eternal suffering. Especially their eternal suffering. So if we care about people's suffering, we're properly motivated out of love of Christ and love for them to deal with their housing problem. Gentlemen, you've got to deal with their eternal problem. That's far, a far greater problem than their housing problem. So the message has to be the cutting edge of mission wherever it goes. Now, does that mean that as Philip did it, the first thing you do is proclaim the message? Not always. Some of you... Uh, are in churches where you've adopted schools. We're in one of those. We adopted Berkeley Elementary School. And I promise you, the first thing we did was not go preach the gospel in the front of Berkeley School. We spent about a year picking up glass, making barbecue for their PTA, painting their school rooms, and helping the little children learn to read. The next year, we invited some of their kids to our VBS, started a soccer league. Now there's a church plant over there that is evangelizing on their property. Not the school property, but on the churches. So, you sequence things in ways that are mutually respectful and considerate of cultural context. But your your intent all the while is to bring these two things together, proclamation and demonstration. That's exactly what Philip did, and it was very, very powerful. We need to move on. Look at verse 8. And you'll notice not only an amazing minister, an amazing milieu, an amazing message, an amazing ministry, but an amazing mirth. Joy, joy, joy. 
And this is the great mark of the church wherever it goes. The great mark of the gospel is that it brings joy to poor people. It brings joy to these depressed, power-driven, rich people. It brings joy everywhere. That's the mark of the gospel. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the next one? Joy. Peace. It's the fruit of God's work in your life. And it brings joy no matter what the circumstances. I've talked to so many of you who have been through incredible difficulties. I mean incredible difficulties. I won't go into it. I just know some of your stories. And when I get the time to really talk with you and find out what's happening in your life, you know, I, I, I eventually hit joy. It's always there. Down underneath your tears or your sorrow or even bouts of depression, there's this joy in there that, that, cannot, be burnt, that cannot be quenched. It's the presence of the Lord, and He brought joy to them. Now, happy, happy, happy all the day? Well, look at verses 9 through 24. But there was a man named Simon. Hello, Simon. I thought we were just going to have Philip. No, when you get Philip, you get Simon too. Here we go. But there was a man named Simon. Not Simon Peter, boys. This is another Simon, a dark Simon. Uh, spiritually dark Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Know anybody like that? They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Okay, quickly. We see in verses 9 through 24, the amazing gospel outcomes often lead to spiritual conflict. <laughs> you know, if you expect to... Uh, go to one of our neighborhoods here in Memphis or to go to one of our many, many poor countries around the world and lost, unevangelized countries and you expect people to fall down and roll out the red carpet and say, oh, we're so glad you're here, wondering why it took you so long to get here and you got another thought coming. Uh, the amazing gospel outcomes when people come to Christ creates all kinds of spiritual conflict. And this guy, Simon, was a, was a big deal. In Stott's commentary, you noticed he quoted Justin Martyr who is who wrote in the middle of the second century, and, and Justin Martyr spoke of Simon of Samaria. He said he was considered a god, he was worshipped by the Samaritans and also some of the Romans, and that there was a statue uh, built to him. And Irenaeus also, later on uh, in the early church, 
uh, cited Simon as the author of many heresies. So some say that Simon's our, the first heretic who attacked the church. Now notice A, verses 9 through 13, the Holy Spirit overwhelms the underworld. This is the first thing that happens. You can see the power of the Spirit at work. This is what creates the conflict. The demons are already working the system. They're already there. They're already manipulating the people. Then the power of the Spirit comes and overwhelms them. First of all, people are converted, verses 9 through 12. And you saw that. They believed Philip. They were baptized, both men and women. So now not just little boys are receiving the sign of circumcision or proselyte men receiving the sign of circumcision. Now men and women, both genders, equally being included into the church and empowered in the church. Men and women, baptized. They believed. Secondly, notice that the rivals are co-opted, at least initially. And here we're told even Simon himself believed. And look, he was baptized. And look, he continued with Philip. And look, he too was amazed. Now this is amazing, uh, as we'll see in a moment, that we're told here that Simon actually believes. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Now notice in verses 14 through 17 that the church receives the Holy Spirit. This is a controversial section. A lot of people are confused. How can you believe without the Holy Spirit? Well, you can't. So the Spirit had indeed regenerated people. Otherwise, if they didn't have the new birth, they wouldn't believe. They believed in Philip. They trusted in Jesus Christ. And they were baptized into the church as believers. But we're told that when Peter and John came down to be sure this work was valid from Jerusalem, And, of course, they found that it was, and they remembered that Jesus himself had taken them right into Samaria. And you may remember, John said, Lord, you want me to call down fire from heaven and destroy these people? (laughs) John was a racist. And Jesus said, knock it off. He says, I'm going to send you out two by two into this place, and you're going to serve these people, and so on. So John had to be dealt with. Now John goes back to Samaria as a spirit-filled man now, completely different. And what does he do? He takes these poor Samaritans, and he lays hands on them, And they receive the power of the Spirit. Now, guys, there are people in churches now who believe in Jesus Christ and really haven't been taught about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and don't know the fullness of the Spirit yet. I'll leave that for your discussion groups. But the church receives the Holy Spirit. He's a gift to us. We need Him. We can't do mission in our city or around the world without Him. But notice in verses 18 through 24 that the world refuses the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered them money. Simon wasn't interested in fellowship with God. Simon wasn't interested in giving his life to Christ. Simon wanted power, spiritual power. That's what he was known for. And now there was a spiritual power that was greater than his own magical abilities. And he wanted to be able to buy it and co-opt it into his magic act. And I see this everywhere where money and influence and power and prestige will always try to co-opt the gospel. I wish we had time to talk about it. Maybe we can return to this later. But there, with Simon, he says, Peter rebukes him straight on and speaks about his heart being wicked. Simon doesn't repent. He only is sorrowful that Peter has announced a curse on him. Curse on him. He says, and he doesn't say, I'm going to pray that that doesn't happen. He said, Peter, you pray. In other words, Simon doesn't really know him. So here's the point. The text says Simon believed. And then the text shows that Simon didn't really believe savingly. This is a classic text you need to be aware of. That belief is more than assent 
to certain historical facts. Belief is more than a profession of faith. Belief is more than walking an aisle. Gentlemen, belief is more than baptism because Philip was baptized. Gentlemen, belief is more than hanging out with a great preacher because Simon did hang out. He continued with Philip. He fellowshiped with him. He wanted to learn from him. Real belief is more than this. What is it? It's trusting in Jesus Christ. It's placing your life in His hands and asking the Spirit to take over your life and transform you and purge you of the junk that you were involved with before. You'll never become perfect until heaven, but you begin the journey. You're asking the Spirit to take over you. There's belief. So what you have here is what's known as spurious belief or specious belief, insincere belief, superficial belief that is no belief at all. And James actually says it. Faith without works is dead. If there are not these works in your life, you're simply looking for fire insurance, and that's not who Jesus is. He's not an insurance agent. He is the Lord of the universe. And so you take Him as He is, and He's not only Savior, He is Lord. And Simon didn't get it, but he had a certain form of acquiescence, which many today will claim they have and call that belief. Lastly, with the 30 seconds we have, You'll notice in verse 25, spiritual conflicts then lead to people being terrified. No, spiritual conflicts lead to more gospel ministry. Look at this. After all this conflict and all this effort, and they see the power of the Holy Spirit, now they go everywhere. Gentlemen, if you've experienced something in your life, it's like what they tell you in sales. When you have a good sales day, don't go home early for heaven's sakes. Keep it going. You're on a hot day. And so many guys, you know, they'll make this big sale at 10 o'clock in the morning and then go have three martinis and it's over. What a waste. Look, when you hit it, when God is working with you, step it up a notch. Go to the other places. Expand the ministry. Get it going. Take what God's given you and make the best of it. Don't go home early. Make it to all the villages in Samaria. That was the whole point. So take it, gentlemen, where you're going today. Take it. We got off to a good start, didn't we? 6.30 to 7.30, we're in God's Word. Now we got 7.30 till bedtime. Let's go. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the opportunity to serve You today in the power of the Holy Spirit and with the great message of the Gospel and with deeds of love and mercy. Help us as individual men. Help us as team members. Help us as members of churches and leaders. Help us, Lord, to be Your witnesses everywhere. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.